Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 85, recorded here on October 8th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So as always, please do your own homework. We're going to start with the market update and outlook as usual. Uh, and I thought uh, on the weekly Bitcoin news, I would start with a wrap up of the Pacific Bitcoin Festival, which was just held up in LA on October 5th and October 6th. I had the pleasure of being there. And um, so I'll give a few comments and takes on that and then get into the Bitcoin news for the week and then wrap up with a highlight of this week's Substack uh, celebrating Bitcoin's historic milestones. So with that, we will jump right in. The major stock indexes flipped early losses into an afternoon rally Friday after the U.S. jobs report showed a stronger than expected labor market. Alongside slowing wage gains, employers added 336,000 jobs in September, the strongest gain since January, and up sharply from the previous month's upwardly revised 227,000 gain. Prices of stocks and bonds initially fell sharply on the news, but both markets rebounded as the increase in average hourly earnings was modest and job gains may have been distorted by seasonal adjustments. And there's probably a lot of people working two jobs now, too. Uh, or three jobs. U.S. Treasury yields dropped from session highs, but still ended higher for the week, with the benchmark 10-year note jumping 20 basis points to 4.78%, and the 30-year yield climbing 24 basis points to 4.94%, the highest level since September 2007. Uh, That was right before the GFC. So uh, we'll see if uh, the 10-year gets above 5. That Uh, will be interesting. Friday's big stock market move secured weekly gains for the major indexes with the S&P 500 snapping a four-week losing streak to finish half a percent higher while the Dow Jones edged up 0.3% and the NASDAQ composite gained 1.6%. Looking ahead, investors will have plenty on their plate in the week ahead as high interest rates and chaos in Congress continue to weigh on investor sentiment. Oh, and then we also have a war in Israel uh, to deal with, and I'm sure the oil will uh, be interesting next week as well. The Consumer Price Index report could be could be the key event next week as it arrives on the heels of a hot U.S. jobs report. Um, the Q3 earnings season will begin to ramp up with PepsiCo, Delta Airlines, and J.P. Morgan, just a few of the big names set to report. Head of the earnings flood, analysts have pushed on revenue and EPS estimates higher on 10 of the 11 main groups in the S&P 500 index to add just a little bit more drama to the mix. Okay, uh, moving on to Bitcoin news, Pacific Bitcoin wrap-up. So uh, it's a two-day event. Um, there's just too much. <laughs> there's too much to see, uh, really. So uh I uh, did on the first day, I attended uh, the welcome to Pacific Bitcoin, uh, the mining track kickoff, uh, a trillion reasons to Bitcoin, and then uh, Bitcoin and the future of a fragmenting world. Um, I did not attend the lightning, the future of payments um, 
thing, but I did actually watch the video uh, after the fact, and that was actually pretty good. I think what I'll do is um, I'll include some links to some of the videos of the sessions that uh, Pacific Bitcoin posted already. So if you want to watch uh, those, you can, and you didn't have to pay 250 bucks. I did the early bird, of course, last year. Uh, so I watched those sessions, uh, also took, and then there was two venues. There's the Swan Dome, which is a smaller venue, and then the main stage. So those were on the main stage, and the Swan Dome, I saw all the personal finance questions Bitcoiners are afraid to ask. Uh, Noster Vox Populi, Bitcoiner Speed Dating, and then finished the day in the main uh, venue with our Having Price Cycles Bullshit, and then the Lynn Alden Fireside Chat, which was terrific. Day two, I spent a little bit more time, and I spent a lot of time hanging out with Bitcoiners the first day, uh, more more so that day than on the second day. Second day, uh, on the main stage, I checked out Welcome to Pacific Bitcoin Day 2, Fighting for Liberty in the Digital Age, which was really quite interesting. Avoiding the debt spiral, um, the Satoshi Papers, Political Economy After Bitcoin, which again, I thought was quite fascinating. And then Bitcoin Core Concepts. And then uh, over in the Swan Dome, I checked out a fireside chat with Eric Kaysen, which was excellent. Uh, the Miss Elva El Salvador keynote, uh, which was also excellent. And then uh, the Mycelium of Money uh, with Brandon Quidham, which is, I've heard him on podcasts, but uh, the live presentation was excellent. Mark Moss gave a nice talk on uh technology um and technological change cycles which was quite good uh there was a session of simply bitcoin live which i enjoyed and then uh finished the day with austrian economics for dummies with peter saint Anch. some key takeaways from the conference um bitcoin is not inevitable we all have much work to do uh, towards education, adoption, and uh, investing in builders, time, money. Uh, education re remains the most important thing. Podcasts, blogs, other media are really important. That was actually in uh, Corey Clipson's keynote speech or uh, welcoming speech at the beginning of day one. Developers need to work on better, easier user interfaces, especially for Lightning, but also for long-term Bitcoin storage, especially multi-sig um, for ease of use. Um, the people are just amazing. I always enjoy meeting Bitcoiners at the conference. Um, it's always striking how we're all on the same page, despite very diverse backgrounds. I was able to meet Dr. Peter St. Ange. He's a great guy um wonderful messages in his work you know he's posts a lot of videos he's got a sub stack that i follow uh, i'm a i'm a i'm a fan nice guy too really really uh great to talk to him i also met miss universe el salvador very impressive smart articulate uh she's helping support you know organic food sustainability uh, and she's also doing a lot of in around Bitcoin education uh, in the schools in El Salvador. And she's also uh, just a great uh, person. And she's also an entrepreneur, which is also pretty cool. Uh, technological innovation, industrial revolutions. This is from Mark Moss's talk are inherently long cycles. 
we're at the beginning of uh, what he calls the decentralized revolution, which is kind of coming after the internet revolution. Things like Bitcoin, Lightning, Noster, AI, all of this is in play. Um, we're looking at probably the next 20 to 50 years for this cycle to mature. We can expect lots of change um, since you know technologies all tend to pop up around the same time during these revolutions and change uh, the way we we live but you know the industries need time to for the entire supply chain to adopt these changes <clears throat> and one key message from him was really it's that as bitcoiners we have to put our money where our mouth is we have to invest in these startups in order to create um, the kind of future that we want to see which i thought was a good message um I can't believe I never learned about Austrian economics. Um, I was a business and accounting major, and then, you know, until now, almost 30 years later. Um, and uh, one book recommendation that came out of the Austrian Economics for Dummies uh, session was uh, What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray Rothbard. So I'll be reading that um, after I get done reading Lynn Alden's book, Broken Money. So that's next on my list. Very inexpensive paperback. I think it's like six or seven bucks on, on Amazon. Uh, El Salvador is doing great things. Don't believe everything you read in the mainstream media. Um, you know, they are uh, really leading the charge with Bitcoin and Bitcoin education and really leveraging the asset to grow their economy and um, uh, you know, pull themselves up. Uh, the smartest people I have met are all involved in Bitcoin, and there are more of them every year, um, especially the former Wall Street types, which is really quite interesting. Uh, we're almost embarrassed to admit it, but, uh, you know, uh, it takes all kinds. And finally, uh, we're going to win. So those were kind of my takeaways from Pacific Bitcoin, and uh, I bought the pre-sale for next year, so I will be heading back out next year. All right, diving into the news then. Um, uh, first article here is from Bitcoin.com. This was posted, uh, looks like a couple days ago. American economist Jeffrey Sachs heralds the end of dollar hegemony. Central bank digital currencies will become the basis of payments. Jeffrey Sachs, an American economist, professor at the University of Columbia and best-selling author, has issued his opinion about the end of the dollar status as the dominant world currency. In statements given at the 20th annual meeting of the Valdai Discussion Club, a Moscow-based think tank, Sachs explained that the end of US dollar hegemony might happen in the next decade. Due to the misguided use of the country has given to its currency, which is currently the standard for cross-border settlements. Uh, this is a quote from him. The epoch of the international financial system dominated by the dollar is drawing to an end, and this will happen in the next decade. Furthermore, Sachs stressed that this process is ongoing with the economy of the U.S. only accounting for 15% of the world's production after producing 30% of the world's goods after World War II. Sachs has talked about this before, stating that the decline in dollar hegemony was a consequence of its weaponization against nations like Russia, Venezuela, and Iran. 
According to Sachs, the U.S. became reliant on using the financial system for the sake of achieving geopolitical goals. Sachs detailed that this percentage will continue to decrease as other countries continue to outgrow the U.S. in the future. Nonetheless, for Sachs, none of the standard currencies available today will become a successor of the dollar. On this, Sachs declared central bank digital currencies will become the basis of payments. Central bank digital currencies are central bank-issued digital equivalents of today's fiat currencies that offer a set of incentives for issuers like better cross-border payment services, increased traceability, and enhanced control. And don't forget surveillance and uh, authoritarianism. According to a Bank for International Settlement survey published uh, in July, 24 central banks will have implemented their CBDCs by 2030 to improve their settlement capabilities. Furthermore, according to the Atlantic Council, <clears throat> a U.S.-based think tank, 130 countries representing 98% of the global gross domestic product are exploring the CBDC, uh, which is not good news. Um, and that's uh, why you want to hold Bitcoin, because uh, it is nobody can mess with it, not the central banks and nobody. And we are building a circular economy around it. So it is possible to transact outside of the fiat system with Bitcoin, which is always a good thing to have in your back pocket. Next article was posted uh, yesterday, uh, and this is also from Bitcoin.com. And again, I will include links to all the articles I go over in this week's show in the show notes. Um, and I think I also along with some of the Pacific Bitcoin uh, videos as well this week. Uh, Russian President Putin says U.S. dollar-based global financial system is collapsing. Russian President Vladimir Putin conveyed at the plenary session of the 20th anniversary meeting of the Valdai Discussion Club on Thursday that the global financial system based on the U.S. dollar is gradually collapsing. The Bretton Woods system is outdated, Putin said, noting that he is not the only one with this view, as Western experts also share this perspective. The Russian president added, This Bretton Woods system was created on the basis of the dollar, but it is all gradually collapsing. After all, a currency is a derivative of the power of the economy of the country that issues this currency. The share of the American economy and world GDP is declining. This is also <clears throat> an obvious thing. This is statistical data, he stressed. In contrast, Putin emphasized that the share of the BRICS countries in terms of purchasing power parity in relation to the share of the G7 countries is increasing, especially after the admission of new members to the organization. He pointed out this is already a serious meaning. The difference is quite serious. The BRICS economic bloc recently extended membership to Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. At the conclusion of the BRICS summit in August, the leaders of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa declared the importance of encouraging the use of local currencies in international trade and financial transactions, commenting on the BRICS group creating a common currency the Russian president opined for BRICS, we now need not to create a single currency, but we need to establish a settlement system, create financial logistics in order to ensure payments between our states, switch to payments in national currencies. Putin further shared, yesterday we discussed this issue with our experts, including the possibility of creating a single BRICS currency. Theoretically, yes, it's possible, but in order to ever approach this, 
we need to achieve a certain parity in the development of the economies of our countries, but this is a very long-term prospect. Uh, so interesting take, and uh, again, pr probably seems to be true. Uh, a lot of us in the Bitcoin community uh, certainly are believing that. And it it feels like it's accelerating, like uh, the government is just uh, spending more and more money on, um, you know, sending money overseas to pay for wars, uh, you know, um, Congress is in disarray. I mean, they could barely agree on um, keeping the same level of spending, let alone cutting spending. So uh, some things are going to really have to break before there's uh, a wake-up call and uh, you know, hopefully the U.S. learns to live within its means because if it doesn't, then you know uh, it may not happen tomorrow, but uh, at some point the house of cards seems like it is destined to collapse. Uh, there was a really good article in C on CNBC that was published on Friday, October 6th, on the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried trial, which I thought was pretty interesting. I shared it on Oster, uh, but I will go through it here. Next, uh, it's, uh, articles entitled Sex, Signal Messages, and Sabotage, SBF's Top Execs and Bahamas Roommates Tell All in Court. Two of Sam Bankman-Fried's former friends from MIT, who also worked at crypto exchange FTX while living with the company's founder in the Bahamas, took the stand in a Manhattan courtroom this week to testify against their former classmate, confidant, and boss, a man who allegedly ran a crypto empire that defrauded thousands of customers out of billions of dollars. Gary Wang, the lesser-known co-founder of FTX, was asked by Assistant U.S. Attorney Nicholas Roos on Thursday, did you commit financial crimes while working at FTX? Yes, responded Wang. He said that his crimes, including wire and commodities fraud, were carried out with the help of Bankman Freed, FTX ex-engineering head Nishad Singh, and Caroline Ellison, who ran sister hedge fund Alameda Research and had been Bankman Freed's girlfriend. Mr. Wang, do you see any of the people you committed those crimes with in the courtroom today? Roos continued. Wang, dressed in an oversized and wrinkled suit with a red tie and glasses, awkwardly stood up and looked around the courtroom before responding, Yes, who do you see? asked Roos. Sam Bankman-Fried, he said. The trial set to last six weeks will resume on Tuesday with key testimony expected from Ellison who is considered the prosecution star witness, having already pleaded guilty to multiple charges. Bankman Freed faces seven federal charges, including wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering that could put him in prison for the rest of his life. Thus far, Bankman Freed, 31, has remained mostly quiet in court, intently listening to witnesses and at times writing notes to his attorneys. But as Wang testified against him, Bankman Freed looks visibly upset shifting his gaze from his former friend to the ground and at one point putting his head on his, in his hands. Wang, 30, was technology chief for FTX, which spiraled into bankruptcy in November. He spoke so fast that the U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan and the prosecutor both stopped him at points to ask that he slow his pace. Much of Wang's testimony on Friday focused on the final days at FTX before the entire operation imploded, including reports in the media detailing Alameda's business practices and its troubling ties to FTX. Wang said that in response to the reporting, an emergency meeting was called between Bankman-Fried, Wang, and Singh to discuss shutting down Alameda. 
He said they ultimately decided against such a move because he and Bankman-Fried were aware that Alameda had no way to repay the roughly $14 billion hole in its books. Prosecutors took the jury through a series of tweets beginning on November 7th. Posts came from the company blaming bank hours for slow withdrawals, while Bankman-Fried tweeted from his personal account assuring customers that all was fine. FTX was not fine and assets were not fine, Wang testified. On November 12th, after FTX declared bankruptcy, Bankman-Fried asked Wang to drive with him to the Bahamas Securities Commission for a meeting. On the drive, Bankman-Fried told Wang to transfer assets to Bahamian liquidators because he believed they would allow him to maintain control of the company. Wang said he wasn't in the meeting with the securities authority, though Bankman-Fried's dad was present. Wang said he returned to the U.S. and met with prosecutors the next day. He faces up to 50 years in prison when he faces a judge for sentencing following this trial. He told jurors he signed a six-page cooperation agreement that requires him to meet with prosecutors, answer their questions truthfully, and turn over evidence. <clears throat> for months, Bankman-Fried had known that Wang and Ellison, who were integral members of his personal and professional inner circles, had turned on him. Both pleaded guilty in December and have since been cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. Wang's testimony, which stretched into Friday, was given under a cooperation agreement with the government. Ellison is expected to take the stand under a similar arrangement. Born in China, Wang moved to the U.S. at age seven and grew up in Minnesota before going to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to study math and computer science. He worked at Google after college. Wang, who first met Bankman-Fried during high school at summer camp, <clears throat> owned 10% of Alameda while his boss owned the other 90%. Wang told the court about the advantages that Alameda received by having code baked into FTX's software that allowed special access to the crypto exchange. Those privileges ultimately resulted in Alameda owing FTX $8 billion worth of customer deposits. We gave special privileges on FTX that gave unlimited withdrawals on the platform to Alameda. Wang said Alameda was allowed to withdraw and transfer those funds and had a $65 billion line of credit. When customers deposited U.S. dollars, it went to Alameda, he said. It existed in the computer code. Alameda could have negative balances and unlimited withdrawals. That, quote, bug in the code was written by Nishad Singh, who was FTX's director of engineering and reviewed by Wang. Bankman-Fried was calling the shots, Wang said. Wang also told the court about a million dollar personal loan he received and a 200 million to 300 million dollar loan in his name from Alameda that was never deposited into his account, but rather was used to make investments into other companies on behalf of FTX. That was all done by Bankman-Fried, he testified. In early 2020, Wang said he discovered for the first time Alameda's negative balance exceeding FTX's revenue, an indication that Alameda was taking customer funds. Wang said he brought this to Bankman-Fried's attention several times. In late 2021, Wang discovered Alameda had withdrawn $3 billion from its $65 billion line of credit. Wang's compensation was a base salary of $200,000 per year plus stock. He owned roughly 17% of FTX. Even though they were co-founders, ultimately it was Sam's decision to make when there were disagreements, he said. Adam Yadidia, who was the prosecution's second witness on Wednesday, continued his testimony on Thursday. Yadidia met Bankman-Fried in college at MIT, and the pair remained close friends. Yadidia assumed a robotic posture on the stand, worked 
out of FTX's Hong Kong office from January to October of 2021, and then in the Bahamas until last year's collapse. In his testimony, he referred to a group signal thread called People of the House, referring to Bankman-Fried's $35 million penthouse where many employees lived. In terms of who was paying the rent, Yadidia recalled Bankman-Fried saying he, quote, assumed it's just Alameda paying for the rent in the end, paying for it in the end. Yadidia said Bankman-Fried had told him before he began working in the Bahamas in 2019 that he and Ellison had sex. Bankman-Fried asked Yadidia if it was a good idea for them to date, to which Yadidia said no. Bankman-Fried responded by saying that he was expecting that answer. One of Yadidia's responsibilities was fixing the bug in the code that gave Alameda preferential treatment. In June 2022, he submitted a report to Bankman-Fried on Signal <clears throat> that showed $8 billion in customer money held in an internal database tracking the cash wired to an Alameda account called fiat at ftx.com was missing. Yadidia said he and Bankman-Fried spoke about it at the pickleball court at the resort in Nassau, Bahamas. He asked his boss if things were okay. He was concerned because it seemed like a lot of money from FTX customers was at risk. Sam said, we were bulletproof last year. We aren't bulletproof this year, Yadidia testified. Yadidia said he asked when they would be bulletproof again. Bankman-Fried said he wasn't sure, but it may be six months to three years. Yadidia said Bankman-Fried appeared worried or nervous, which he said was atypical. Still, Yadidia said he trusted Bankman-Fried and Ellison to, quote, handle the situation. On cross-examination, Christian Everdell, Bankman-Fried's attorney, focused on how Yadidia was the one responsible for developing and reviewing the code. He asked about the long hours employees worked and Yadidia's concern for Wang being near burnout. That resulted in Yadidia instituting a rule to not wake Wang at night for bug fixes because he needed sleep. Everdell also drilled Yadidia on his high level of compensation. In his less than two years at FTX, his base salary was between $175,000 and $200,000, but he received multiple bonuses of more than $12 million in cash and company equity. Yadidia said, He's now teaching math, geometry, and algebra at a high school. He invested most of the millions he earned in, as bonuses back into FTX, and his equity stake is now worthless. As FTX was failing, <coughs> Yadidia said he was by Bankman-Fried's side. He highlighted a signal exchange in November 2022, during which he wrote, I love you, Sam. I'm not going anywhere. He said he wrote the message because so many people had left. When asked what changed, Yadidia said he learned that FTX customer deposits have been used to pay loans to creditors. He said Alameda's actions seemed flagrantly wrong. Yadidia's testimony ended on a fiery note, which was later struck from the record. He was asked why he had lost faith in FTX and resigned. FTX defrauded all its customers, he said. The third witness to take the stand was Matt Huang, co-founder and managing partner of Paradigm, a crypto venture capital firm that invested over $275 million in FTX. That stake was wiped out. Huang testified about his firm's due diligence on FTX, and he told the court that Bankman-Fried assured him that funds would be used <clears throat> for FTX and not Alameda. Additionally, he was promised that Alameda had no preferential treatment on the FTX platform, even though the hedge fund was one of its top traders. Wang said he was concerned about FTX's lack of a board of directors, but he eventually invested anyway. During cross-examination, Wang said Paradigm pressed Bankman-Fried on the board issue and uh, was told he didn't want investors as directors, but he did plan on having a board with experts.
So again, key takeaways from this, number one, don't ever trust an exchange. Number two, um, the fiat system encourages corruption, and this is a perfect example of uh, how corrupt things can get just by leveraging new technology, because um, really what they were doing was no different than what's done in the fiat world, just with no oversight. And it will be interesting to see if Sam Bankman-Fried or, you know, what ends up happening at the end of the trial, if he's, you know, given a light sentence or a slap on the wrist, or if he really ends up with a hundred years in jail, um, that will be a true test of uh, whether or not all of our institutions have been totally corrupted. Um, so, uh, we will continue to follow this one. Uh, Next up is an interesting piece from Yahoo Finance. This was posted on October 6th. Article is entitled JP Morgan and Others Required to Reveal Crypto Holdings per New Plan. According to a plan devised by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, banks with cryptocurrency exposure will have to disclose their crypto holdings. Yesterday, the committee, which sets norms for lenders and traditional finance, announced the plan to implement disclosure requirements for banks relating to their digital asset exposures and risks. With the collapse of crypto exchange FTX, sending Bitcoin to its lowest price since 2020, along with failures of regional banks like Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, the year 2023 has been choppy. The newly proposed rules by the Banking Regulation Committee come as international regulators are of the opinion that this year's banking collapse was partly because of the sudden hype around crypto, which of course we all know is total bullshit. It's the collapse of the banks it had to do with the actual model that banks follow of no reserve banking. And uh, all their assets, their government bonds and everything are getting you know pummeled because the Fed's raising interest rates and then people want their money out. So the banks collapse. Anyway, Thus, lenders will now be forced to reveal the size and nature of their unbacked crypto holdings, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. A move focused unbacked, that's an interesting word. Like Bitcoin doesn't really need backing. Bitcoin is the asset. But anyway, a move focused on increasing transparency and hence reducing industry contamination. <laughs> contamination. The committee said the March 2023 banking turmoil was the most significant system-wide banking stress since the great financial crisis in terms of its scale and scope. In response, the committee is today publishing a report that assesses the causes of the turmoil, the regulatory and supervisory responses, and the initial lessons learned. The committee added that a consultation paper will be published soon, which will propose a set of disclosure requirements related to banks' crypto asset exposures. These disclosures would be would complement the prudential standard for such exposures that was published in December 2022. Notably, the Basel Committee, which comprises banking authorities from 28 global jurisdictions, including the United States, the UK, and the European Union, had previously hinted that it would monitor norms related to cryptocurrencies and modify them if needed. However, until now, the committee had never disclosed the idea of separate disclosure rules for lenders' crypto exposure. Thus, if the plan is implemented, banks like JP Morgan, JPM, and others uh, with crypto exposure will have to disclose their holdings. Notably, in July 2021, JPM became the first major bank in the United States to allow its financial advisors to give 
all its wealth management clients access to cryptocurrency funds. JP Morgan has also been offering its private bank wealth management customers access to an in-house passively managed Bitcoin fund. The Wall Street giant launched a division focused on digital assets named Onyx and its digital currency JPM coin. JPM coin was launched in 2019 to allow corporate clients to move euros and dollars internally. Moreover, JPM is in the early stages of exploring the concept of launching a blockchain-based deposit token for customers. However, because of increased scams and fraud cases, JP Morgan's retail bank Chase in the UK decided to restrict customers' access to cryptocurrency-related transactions. The bank said that from October 16th, there will be a limit on the ability of its customers to engage in crypto transactions in the UK, which by the way, it was big news with the uh, Bitcoin community. Chase is not the first bank to block or restrict crypto transactions. Earlier this year, banks like NatWest Group PLC and Banco Santander imposed tighter restrictions on UK customers looking to use crypto. In order to protect its customers from crypto-related scams, NatWest improved impose new limits on the daily and monthly amount consumers can send to crypto exchanges now. NWG customers can only send a maximum of £1,000 per day and £5,000 over a 30-day period to crypto exchanges. Similarly, Spain Santander said they would block UK customers from sending real-time payments to crypto exchanges while SAN prohibits payments from a customer's account to Binance. Customers can transfer funds to their accounts from Binance. So this just sounds like more of the same where the banks are telling you what to do, trying, you know, under the guise of safety protection. Um, so I think it makes a lot of sense to have several banks that you deal with. Um, and of course, you know, if you're buying Bitcoin from a Bitcoin only exchange, you know, they're obviously going to have to make sure they have good banking relationships uh and that the you know doors don't close on them um and there's always peer-to-peer -peer, which is i i don't like because it's a you know it's a little inefficient and uh you know you're dealing in pretty small transactions but it's good to <clears throat> explore different peer-to-peer -peer exchanges and ways of buying bitcoin that way uh be, as a back as a uh, safety um, because that may be the only way that you're able to do things in the future if uh, if all the banks uh, close their doors to, uh, you know, dealing with uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. That obviously hasn't happened yet, but, you know, it always starts with disclosures. And, uh, you're, you know, again, as they mentioned in the UK, they're just like, no. And then the other bank, uh, Santander, was like, okay, well, you can only do this much, which is ridiculous. Um but, you know, it's the same way with, uh, you know, uh, you know, depositing checks in your account. You know, there's a limit on how much you can do per day, per month. And there's limits on how much you can send and Zelle or, you know, wire transfer or whatever. So um, that's the old financial system. And uh, Bitcoin doesn't care. And you could do whatever you want. And that's called freedom. All right, next article was from Crypto Potato. Um, love that name. Uh, this was posted on August, October 8th, today. Uh, Silk Road founder Ross Ulbricht 
a decade behind bars ignites controversy. In a recent post on the social platform X, Ross Ulbricht, the founder of the infamous darknet marketplace Silk Road, revealed that he has now spent an entire decade in prison. Ulbricht, currently serving a double life sentence, has been controversial since his arrest in 2013. On October 2nd, Ulbricht took to social platform X to share that he has now endured 10 years of imprisonment, expressing his fear that he would spend his remaining days trapped within concrete walls and locked doors. Supporters on X rallied around Ulbricht, arguing that his punishment didn't align with the crime he committed. One user asserted, the punishment should match the crime, and the one you were given does not even come close to that. Another pointed out that individuals guilty of more serious offenses have had opportunities for redemption. Ulbricht's case has gained significant attention. Over 250 organizations advocate for his release, with half a million people signing a virtual petition. He has also gained backing from the crypto and Bitcoin communities, with some referring to him as a Bitcoin political prisoner. However, not everyone agrees with this sentiment. Some users claim that Ulbricht's prosecution involved allegations of hiring hitmen to commit murder, although he was not formally charged with these crimes. Furthermore, other users have highlighted the negative aspects of the Silk Road, such as involvement in sex trafficking and illegal drug trade, arguing that it facilitated these illegal activities. The controversy surrounding Ulbricht's case is intensified by comparisons to sentences given to others linked to the Silk Road. Advocates for Ulbricht's freedom highlight that the average sentence for those involved is about six years. The top drug seller received only seven years in prison before being released. Moreover, the creators of Silk Road 2.0 served minimal or no time in jail and are now free. Silk Road began operations in 2011 as a pioneering darknet market where users could buy and sell illegal goods and services using Bitcoin as the primary currency. Ulbricht, operating under the pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts, managed the platform from his laptop. It quickly gained attention as the first modern darknet market. The US FBI seized Ulbricht's laptop on October 1st, 2013 effectively ending his reign over the Silk Road. Subsequently, in 2015, he was convicted in a U.S. federal court on multiple charges related to the marketplace's operations and sentenced to two life terms plus 40 years, with no possibility of parole. Court documents revealed that Silk Road facilitated the sale of 9,519,664 Bitcoin between February 2011 and July 2013, collecting commissions totaling 600,000 Bitcoin, roughly equivalent to $1.2 billion in sales and $80 million in commissions at the time of publication. Um, I don't know. I think there's certainly some um, truth to the argument that the punishment should fit the crime, and uh, it does seem like the government played a pretty heavy hand on Ross and... Um, you know, there's a lot of people that have done a lot worse that uh, aren't spending that much time in prison. I think the government's just trying to send a message here. And uh, if you're into Bitcoin, um, you should be paying attention to that. That's all I'm going to say on that. Uh, next is from Crypto News. And uh, this is October, this was posted on October 5th. Um, El Salvador launches first volcano powered Bitcoin mining pool. Um, 
On October 4th, El Salvador announced the launch of Lava Pool, the country's first Bitcoin mining pool powered entirely by renewable geothermal energy. The venture represents an important milestone uh, in El Salvador's efforts to integrate Bitcoin into its energy infrastructure. The Lava Pool project is a combined effort of the energy firm Volcano Energy and tech giant Luxor Technology. Together, they seek to tap into the rich reservoir of geothermal energy, making the mining of cryptocurrency more environmentally friendly. The renewable energy Bitcoin mining pool will be maintained by Volcano Energy, a public-private partnership that has pledged to commit 23% of its net income to the Salvadoran government. The pool will also benefit from Luxor Technologies hash rate forward marketplace, a hedging mechanism already adopted by major players in the Bitcoin mining industry to protect against market volatility. Gerson Martinez, Volcano Energy's chief strategy officer, highlighted the importance of this project in the press release stating Lava Pool <clears throat> is another step toward building a fully integrated Bitcoin company. Our vision is to create a vertically integrated energy and Bitcoin mining company whose value is accretive to investors and to all Salvadoran citizens, Martinez said. Lava Pool emphasizes the country's commitment to merging Bitcoin and into its energy infrastructure, which could substantially improve the economics of new energy projects, especially in remote regions. It also provides immediate revenue and flexible load management capabilities to support the grid during high demand. Lava Pool represents just one component of Volcano Energy's strategy to build a global Bitcoin mining operation powered entirely by renewable energy. The company plans to develop a 241 megawatt renewable energy park in El Salvador's Metapan region funded by a $1 billion commitment from leaders in the Bitcoin industry. The Bitcoin mining farm's initial computational power is projected to exceed 1.3 exahash per second, potentially placing Volcano Energy among the top mining pools globally by hash rate on par with major players like NiceHash and KuCoin. The scaling up of Bitcoin mining capacity signifies a major step towards El Salvador's goals of economic freedom, energy competitiveness, and self-reliance through integrating Bitcoin and renewable resources. With the launch of the first volcano-powered Bitcoin mining pool, El Salvador continues to assert itself as a global leader in Bitcoin adoption. Lava Pool showcases the nation's commitment to leading Bitcoin and renewable energy integration. It also emphasizes El Salvador's uh, model for the rest of the world in merging Bitcoin mining with clean energy infrastructure. For a nation whose economy relies heavily on remittances, El Salvador's embrace of Bitcoin also promotes financial independence. Lava Pool and other mining projects funnel revenue directly to the Salvadoran government and people bypassing traditional remittance proce processors. In short, the intersection of renewable energy and cryptocurrency mining in El Salvador offers a glimpse into the potential future of sustainable digital economies. While many countries are still deliberating their stance on cryptocurrencies, El Salvador's proactive approach with the Lava Pool project provides a practical blueprint for integrating modern technology with natural resources. As global discussions continue about the environmental impact of digital currencies, which is all bullshit, by the way, uh, the Lava Pool stands as an exemplar of how innovation can align with an environmental responsibility. Um, I think we should have as much energy as possible, and I think Bitcoin mining is a perfectly good use of that. There you have it. 
Uh, and also, as I mentioned earlier, you know, and the take one of the key takeaways from the Pacific Bitcoin conference is, um, you know, uh, El Salvador truly is doing great things and uh, don't count them out. And don't believe everything you read in the mainstream. Uh, and then finally, um, kind of an interesting article from Bitcoin Magazine. Um, this was posted on October 5th. Uh, this is on drive chains, uh, which seems to be more of a conversation on Twitter or X than it is on Noster. Um, seems like everybody's kind of moved on from that, uh, or never even talked about it really that much on Noster, but it's been a big conversation. Uh, so anyway, this is article is called drive chains from a Bitcoin miners perspective. So I thought it'd be interesting. Uh, the, um, Author is uh, pretty, uh, Amanda Fabiano, uh, also wrote it with Harry Suttick and Rory Murray. So these are some pretty smart people uh, who understand not only Bitcoin mining, but also the proposal. So, uh, and this was posted on October 5th again. So jump right in. Bitcoin is the largest, longest running, decentralized, and most secure digital currency of all time. But... Uh, uh, it is far from the first such attempt. We as a community would do well to remember that Bitcoin stands on the shoulders of previous projects spanning across decades of work. Satoshi built upon the technical underpinnings of said projects, their successes and failures in each unique cultural ethos. Taking a step back and thinking about the network, one of the great attributes of Bitcoin is its deep simplicity in the monetary policy and fundamentally clear incentives across stakeholders in the network. Providing access to sound money on a trustless basis is not without risk. The game theory and incentives for miners to behave properly is one of the most sensitive components of the system. Miners simultaneously need to be held to the highest behavioral standard in the present. Uh, avoid 2017 style forks, avoid transaction censorship, mitigate reorg risk, etc. And the network must also offer miners sufficient visibility into the future of their business models necessary to continue making the enormous capital expenditure investment and commit to large-scale, long-duration operating expenses. Achieving the balance between these two forces allows for the Bitcoin network to offer sound money at the monetary unit level and censorship resistance at the network level. Both are requirements for Bitcoin to have the hope of achieving global settlement layer dominance. Miners and their behavior frequently become the subject of conversation when network upgrades or new proposals emerge. This is because the network has become accustomed to relying on predictable and compliant miners since 2017, who are node followers in the event of controversial proposals. Their primary focus remains on the challenging needs of meeting ongoing operations and planned growth rather than campaigning for or against Bitcoin software proposals. In order to discuss the incentives that miners face, we need to understand the core business models that miners deploy and the directional unit economics across the standard set of inputs. In the simplest terms, miners aim to produce Bitcoin at the lowest possible cost. There are various methods of mining in existence today, each with its own costs, structures, and risks. For the purpose of this post, let's present a basic overview of the inputs miners must consider and the subsequent capital expenditures involved. And so they have a little table here that kind of lists the different components 
you know, ASICs, engineering procurement construction, capacity deposits, maintenance for ASICs, maintenance for facility, SGNA back office R&D, and then the different models, hosted miners, which are non-owned operations, self-miners, owned and operated facilities, and then hosting providers, and then they have some uh, uh, assessment of the different uh, risks associated with each across the spectrum. By engaging in mining, miners are in theory betting that their operational setup will allow them to produce future Bitcoin below market rates. The upfront capital expense and ongoing costs dictate the viability or success of the business for miners and therefore bleeds directly into the game theory underpinning Bitcoin. Miners only have control over their hash rate, which is governed by the difficulty adjustment every two weeks and challenged by the halving event every four years. Satoshi's fundamental innovation aimed to remove the need for trusted third parties when sending or receiving transactions. This was achieved through the implementation of the proof-of-work system, overseen by the difficulty adjustment. This system effectively encourages miners to engage in the fairest competition by which they engage hashes for Bitcoin. They exchange hashes for Bitcoin. One terahash hour is always neutral on the mining network, regardless of barriers to entry, mining cycles, hash price, and Bitcoin price. Furthermore, miners must also take into account market cycles, particularly the halving event, which significantly impacts their earnings by reducing them by half every four years. Although the network is neutral, companies have been created which support the ongoing network that are restricted on the business side of things, i.e. regulatory constraints, business operation decisions, capital availability, costs, etc. These constraints may introduce distortions when considering any newly proposed incentive structures for the broader network participants, creating disparities in some aspects. Since each mining company has vastly different strategies, these trade-offs and nuances are company-specific. To illustrate this point, consider a scenario in which a miner opts for a pool that adheres to SOC 1 and SOC 2 compliance standards, even if it charges higher fees, rather than choosing a pool with lower fees and no compliance standards. In this case, miners are electively making a business decision that aligns with their mandate and goals, something that a miner with a different mandate and goal can disregard. This is one example of an individual business decision that is company-specific. In addition to miners' individual business choice and running a profitable operation, they also have to pay close attention to any and all updates that are being introduced to the Bitcoin protocol from the lens of how it might affect their business both from a short-term perspective and a long-term perspective. Bringing us to the concept of drive chains proposal via BIP 300-301. For a full rundown on the details of the proposal, please read the BitMEX research team's piece. Drive chains themselves are not the problem necessarily. It's the subsequent consequences that can pose challenges and the disregard of current network limitations. While they may increase revenue, They also introduce existential risk to the businesses placing Bitcoin miners on a more challenging trajectory. The Bitcoin mining business is operationally complex and labor-intensive, but that is a natural consequence of the narrow and well-defined role that they've been playing since Bitcoin's inception. Asking miners to adjudicate disputes on a sidechain, potentially many of them at once, doesn't just add additional business complexity. It changes the fundamentally neutral role miners play in validating transactions. Disputes are inevitable, and the complexity around power, incentives, and rules becomes uncertain from a miner's point of view. As of now, the power of miners is checked, 
and extends only to ensuring transactions satisfy consensus rules, which all parties know and agree to. While drive chains can drive additional revenue to Bitcoin, this addition of judgment to the protocol, protocol is deeply risky and is trading short-term revenue for potential long-term consequences, which remain largely unknown. This is simply not a wise trade-off. Opting out isn't really opting out. <clears throat> Miners have the choice to not participate in sidechains, but they will generate income from all sidechain activities, and that activity still is happening and tied to the main Bitcoin network. Put simply, the implementation of drive chains would create additional issues for miners simply by running their standard operations. What if a miner wishes to abstain due to regulatory anxieties? What if certain sidechains engage in untrustworthy behavior? Ignoring legal or regulatory issues isn't a feasible option for many miners, particularly those operating publicly in the U.S., which accounts for over 34% of the network, according to MinerMag. To illustrate this point with a hypothetical scenario, consider a private company issuing a token on a sidechain that enables illicit activity. If that private entity later scams investors and users, as has unfortunately occurred multiple times in the wider crypto industry, who bears responsibility? Can miners claim plausible deniability when they can't truly opt out since the sidechains are pegged to Bitcoin? They remain miners on the Bitcoin network to which these sidechains are linked of which they may have collected revenue from a sidechain associated with the project. The notion of being able to disregard something only exists in a world where you could do so until something goes wrong. Much like the swimming test during witch trials, miners are presumed guilty by default, even if they choose to opt out of sidechains. Given the massive amount of capital time and resources miners pour into their operations, it's a hard trade-off to consider. An increase in pool centralization one could argue that currently the most centralized aspect of mining is mining pools. While there are numerous options available, a mere two mining pools hold substantial control over the majority of the network. It's important to highlight that the cost and time associated with switching mining pools are relatively low. Consequently, the idea that a mining pool could gain control is a risk that can be addressed in less than 10 minutes. In fact, advanced miners typically maintain backup pools not only to facilitate swift transactions when necessary, but also to address operational downtime or outages of the third-party pool. There have been multiple initiatives aimed at decentralizing pools power with various companies collaborating to allocate time, resources, and capital to the development of Stratum V2 as one such effort deriving from Matt Corallo's Better Hash proposal. But while switching costs are low, a world in which drive chains require multiple constant adjudications where subminers in the pool cho choose to vote differently from the pool operator's decision would significantly increase operational complexity. Consider two proposals A and B where the miners in favor of both. If their primary pool chooses to vote against A and for B, then said miner could switch to their secondary pool. But what if the secondary pool is for A and against B? The miner now faces a choice, either jeopardize their revenue and business operations, including employee salaries, to withdraw and self-mine during the adjudication period, or proceed cautiously. Introducing drive chains at this stage before we possess the tools to tackle these challenges is like installing a roof on a house without first laying its foundation. Reflecting back, the inception of the remarkable Bitcoin journey was forged through collaboration with numerous other projects involving a blend of diverse expertise and backgrounds, fostering the critical thinking necessary for success. 
Along the journey of adoption, we lost some of our commitment to constructive conversations possessing intellectual honesty. The level of discussion related to drive chains is veered towards ad hominem attacks and sweeping generalizations, failing to facilitate the constructive dialogue necessary for informed decision-making. Innovation within the Bitcoin ecosystem is a positive and necessary force. It's something that the community should actively foster through careful and constructive discussions and debates. We cannot advocate for adoption while simultaneously closing ourselves off to fresh solutions. Nevertheless, it is vital to maintain a critical perspective when considering the potential long-term impacts of any changes on the network, all while staying grounded in the realities of the current state of the network. <clears throat> so this is a really good deep dive and uh, I really thought it was um, informative and, uh, and um, yeah, I'm not a fan of drive chains, long, long story short. Um, and then finally, just wanted to highlight this week's Substack um, entitled Celebrating Bitcoin's Historic Milestones, A Journey of Freedom and Empowerment. So check that out. I will include a link in the show notes. And if you've hung in with me all the way to the end, thank you. Uh, for listening to the podcast. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Um, and also, if you're not listening on Fountain, you should be. You can earn sats just for listening to your favorite podcast. I know I do every week. Uh, you can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com, and I am on Noster. I'm not on any other social media right now. My Noster and Pub is included in the show notes if you want to follow me there. And if you like the show, please share it with your friends, family. I uh, would really appreciate it. Get the word out. And with that, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>